This week, Middle Market 2023 Restructuring Outlook, Celsius chooses Nova Wolf as plan sponsor, Avaya Files Chapter 11, Revlon 2016 Term Lenders Suffer Major Setback. Hello and welcome to the Reorg Podcast, where we bring the latest developments in high-yield, distressed debt, and bankruptcy. I'm David Zupkis. For this week's deep dive, Andy Lee and Saish Seti of Parallaxis Capital speak to Reorg's Head of Covenants, Peter Washkowitz, about tax receivables agreements, using Carvana's tax receivables agreement as a case study for this esoteric tax asset. It's Friday, February 17th. According to Reorg's first aid database, Chapter 11 filings are on the rise up to the cash giveaway of the pandemic years, with bankruptcies rising 18% in the second half of 2022 from the first half. So far in 2023, 40 companies have filed for Chapter 11 protection, a pace not seen since 2020 prior to the COVID-19 shutdown. Of these, eight were middle market with funded debt of less than $500 million. However, the trading prices of leveraged loans and bonds remain high, to a large extent buoyed by the flood of liquidity that the Federal Reserve unleashed in response to the COVID-19 pandemic, and they do not adequately reflect the stress that many smaller firms are experiencing as they wrestle with high interest rates and elevated labor costs, according to lawyers, advisors, and investors interviewed by Rework. Most economists and analysts agree that a recession driven by the Federal Reserve's hawkish tightening path in response to surging inflation is in the cards. After the 25 basis point hike announced February 1st, the federal funds rate is in the range of 4.5% to 4.7% compared with the 0 to 25 BIPs level of the pandemic years. The yield curve, the historical recession barometer, certainly signals recession with three-month treasury bills some 120 BIPs above the yield on the 10-year treasury note. However, non-farm payrolls reported February 3rd show that the U.S. economy added more than half a million jobs in January, according to Labor Department data. Wages increased by 0.3%, while average workweek hours ticked up by 0.3 hours. The report dashed the hopes of many for a near-term pivot by the Fed to looser policy. This makes the outlook for middle market firms even more challenging, sources say, leaving many of them trapped between the scylla of higher coupon payments on their floating rate debt and the carry bodice of higher wages. While firms have seen some relief from lower fuel costs and input prices, wages as a rule are much stickier. Before a hearing Wednesday on the Celsius Network debtors' a motion to extend their exclusive periods to file and solicit a plan reorganization, debtors announced they had reached an agreement in principle with the Official Committee of Unsecured Creditors on a path forward in the cases and have selected Nova Wolf as the plan sponsor for their recovery corporation model. Under the terms of the agreement, Nova Wolf will contribute $45 million to $55 million in cash as part of the transaction, and convenience class customer creditors below $5,000 in claim amount would receive a 70% recovery in liquid cryptocurrency on the plan effective date. Other earned creditors would own 100% of the NUCO equity share tokens established under the plan and an unspecified significant amount of cryptocurrency and interest in the to-be-formed litigation trust. The filings also unveil separate proposed settlement treatment structures for retail borrowers and custody account holders. At Wednesday's planned exclusivity hearing, Judge Martin Glenn approved a limited extension of exclusivity through March 8th in order to allow the parties to review the debtor's proposed plan framework. The debtor said they intend to file a detailed term sheet with Nova Wolf by February 28th and a plan and disclosure statement by March 31st. Avaya Inc., a Morristown, New Jersey-based digital communications software and services company and all of its U.S. subsidiaries filed prepackaged Chapter 11 cases on Tuesday in the Southern District of Texas, reporting $1 billion to $10 billion in both assets and liabilities. The bankruptcy filing is the company's second after emerging from a freefall in December 2017. Unlike its prior trip through bankruptcy, the company has entered into a pre-petition RSA with 90% of its secured lenders. 
The prepackaged plan, which the debtors began soliciting prepetition, would reduce the company's total debt by more than 75% to $800 million from approximately $3.4 billion as the petition date. Additionally, the company maintains the plan would substantially increase Avaya's cash and strengthen its liquidity position. Avaya must obtain confirmation of the plan within 60 days into the RSA milestones and is targeting emergence within 90 days of the petition date. Dip financing includes a $500 million new money term loan from an investor group led by Apollo Global Management and by Brigade and a $128 million ABL facility from Bank Syndicate led by Citibank. Under the proposed plan, these dip facilities roll over into exit facilities on emergence. According to the debtors, the dip term loan and ABL facilities are the culmination of extensive pre-petition negotiations and are by far the best and only proposal the debtors received. In a first-day declaration, CEO Eric Koza of Alex Partners asserts that the prepackaged plan reflects a fully consensual deal with all the creditor groups and unimpairs all general unsecured creditors at Avaya Inc. and its subsidiaries. The prepackaged plan contemplates $800 million in exit financing, including $500 million in rolled-over dip term loans, $150 million from a debt rights offering, and $150 million in take-back term loans. The debt rights offering would be available to holders of first-seen claims and backstopped by the participating members of the ad hoc groups. Members of the Paul Weiss B3 term lender ad hoc group would be entitled to backstop 42% of the rights offering amount, with members of the Aiken Gump First Lien ad hoc group entitled to backstop the remainder. This week, the descending 2016 term lenders in the Revlon cases suffered a major setback in their quest to nullify the 2020 Branco priming transaction after Judge David S. Jones dismissed their claims against the debtors in the Branco challenge adversary proceeding. In an opinion issued on Tuesday, Judge Jones concluded that the plaintiffs lacked standing to assert equitable claims against the debtors in order to unwind the Branco transactions. The decision eases the path to confirmation for Revlon's proposed plan, which assumes the validity of the Branco transaction and is based on a restructuring support agreement with the ad hoc group of Branco lenders. In briefing and an oral argument, the dissenting 2016 term lenders told the court that their aim in the lawsuit is to have their liens restored. 2016 term lenders had argued that the Branco priming transaction unlawfully stripped their liens from the Branco intellectual property and conferred security interests to the Branco lenders. However, the judge found that the plaintiffs, by asserting equitable claims against the debtors to restore their lien position, mounted an attack on the key underpinnings of the debtors' current capital structure and possible estate entitlements, which are derivative of fraudulent transfer and potential similar estate claims that belong exclusively to the bankruptcy estates. Judge Jones granted the Revlon debtors motion to dismiss in the Branco challenge suit. However, the Branco lenders and the Jeffries defendants' separate motions dismiss the claims against them will be resolved in a separate decision. At a status conference on Wednesday, the judge hinted that he believes his ruling on standing also knocks out the claims against the non-debtor defendants. Top red stories this week included 2023 middle market outlook, the rising role of sponsors and restructurings, interest rates, potential for lender-on-lender violence, litigation coverage, a set of Menifee MDL defendants say Johnson & Johnson failed to warn of autism, ADHD risk preempted by FDA regulations, LTL management petitions for rehearing of path-breaking Third Circuit decision dismissing Chapter 11 case as bad faith filing. Now here's Kate from New York with the week ahead. Hi, this is Kate Thomas. Looking forward to a shorter week ahead, thanks to the President's Day holiday. Starting on Tuesday, the Revlon debtors are scheduled to return to court after their motion to dismiss the 2016 term lenders' challenge to the brand co-transaction was granted this past week. Tuesday's hearing could push the cases closer to confirmation of the debtors' proposed plan, which is based on an RSA with the ad hoc group of brand co-lenders and assumes the validity of the 2020 Brand Co. transaction. 
the debtors will be seeking approval of their disclosure statement, authorization to enter into backstop commitment agreements with the brand co-lenders, and an extension of their exclusive plan filing and solicitation periods through May 9th. Bed Bath & Beyond Canada will also be back in court Tuesday to get approval of sale guidelines and a consulting agreement with liquidator Hilco Merchant Resources. Bed Bath & Beyond Canada filed for protection under Canada's Companies Creditors Arrangement Act on February 10th to wind down its business and pursue an orderly liquidation. The Canadian court has imposed a stay of proceedings against the debtor through February 21st, so the debtor is seeking to extend that stay through May 1st in order to, quote, align with the targeted completion date for the liquidation process, unquote. Last up on Tuesday, the BlockFi debtors have a hearing on their motion to honor client withdrawals from wallet accounts. The debtors claim that the quote-unquote pause of transactions on the BlockFi platform blocked asset transfers after November 10th. However, some account holders managed to transfer assets into their wallets from BlockFi interest-bearing accounts, the debtors claim. So these transactions must be reconciled in order to accurately reflect account balances before the pause. An ad hoc group of wallet account holders has objected to the motion, arguing that these asset transfers were not blocked and that any reconciliation or reversal must be done through an adversary proceeding. Then on Wednesday, the reverse mortgage debtors will be in court for approval of their recently announced settlement with the official unsecured creditors committee and non-debtor parent BNGL Holdings. Under the settlement, BNGL would provide the debtors with an additional $15 million of dip funding, among other terms. The debtors say that without the settlement, they could be forced into a Chapter 7 liquidation because they may run out of cash to continue operating. Former dip lender Leadenhall objects that the settlement impairs Leadenhall's rights, quote-unquote, dramatically under the second amended dip order. Last up, on Wednesday, the Talon Energy Supply Debtors begin mediation in debtor Talon Montana's fraudulent transfer suit, which seeks to avoid approximately $900 million of transfers to former parent PPL relating to a 2014 sale of hydroelectric assets. In December, Judge Marvin Isker confirmed the debtor's Chapter 11 plan which establishes a cash pool for payment of general unsecured claims, funded with up to $11 million in proceeds from the debtor's suit against PPL. That's all from me, David. Back to you. For this week's deep dive, Andy Lee and Saish Sethi of Parallax's Capital speak to Reorg's head of covenants, Peter Washkowitz, about tax receivables agreements using Carvena's tax receivables agreement as a case study of this esoteric tax asset. Joining me today from Parallaxis Capital are Andy Lee, founder and chief investment officer, and Saish Shetty, general counsel. For those of you who are thinking that the name Saish Shetty sounds familiar, that's because on the Mount Rushmore of Rior Covenant analysts, Saish Shetty has a prominent place, as he was the first Rior Covenant analyst. They're here today to discuss a very esoteric portion of the covenant world, which itself is an esoteric portion of the universe. Um, that is the tax receivable agreement. 
Our guests today are from Parallax's Capital and are here to shed some light on an interesting portion of Carvana's capital structure, its tax receivable agreement. Uh, before we get started, could you guys give us some background on Parallaxis? Thanks for having us, Peter. Parallaxis was founded in 2017 and is a leading investment manager focused on corporate tax as an asset class, specifically tax receivable agreements. We are unlocking liquidity for a otherwise niche asset class where there are often unnatural holders given their expertise, size, and durations of these underlying cash flows. Since 2017, we have raised and deployed more than $200 million across our four flagship funds. Um, all right. And, you know, I mean, I kind of pride myself on, on, on knowing a lot about covenants, but I, I got to tell you, I, I don't know the I mean, I, I don't know the first thing about a tax receivable agreement. So um, would you mind actually just kind of giving a general overview on what on what they are? Yeah. And, and Peter, when you've examined a lot of these covenants, you might have actually seen the occasional carve out for distribution on account of tax receivable agreements. And in short, tax receivable agreements or TRAs are contractual arrangements where a company agrees to share the economic benefits from certain tax savings with another party. Typically, it's pre-IPO owners. Now, these contractual arrangements are evidenced through sharing arrangements, which are the TRAs themselves. And TRAs are most commonly found in IPOs that are structured as upseas. And without really getting into the nitty gritty of it, an upsea IPO is designed to generate basis step ups. And these are what create valuable tax deductions for a company. And the TRA would typically provide pre IPO owners with 85% of the tax savings generated by these basis step ups. Yeah, I mean, I've seen them in, in in credit agreements before. I mean, but are are they are they are they common or are they kind of really just for uh, for IPO entities? Yeah, so these will come up in entities that have IPO'd, and they're growing increasingly common as the market has become more comfortable with the structure. So there were over seventy five TRAs in connection with IPOs that were created in twenty twenty one. And that's compared to fewer than 15 in 2015. And naturally, 2022 was a slower year for IPOs all in, but there were still about 20 TRAs created in the market. And a TRA was actually included in one of the largest 22 IPOs, uh, the one for TPG. I got it. And so, um, so obviously, um, you know, that uh, we're going to focus on, uh, on Carvana today. So I, I imagine that they have a, a tax receivable agreement, right? That's right. Carvana is a prime example of an upsea structure that included a TRA. The company's public filings note that the total TRA liabilities is in the $1.6 billion zip code. So the substantial portion of their liabilities, you might not see it today on their balance sheet, but it's publicly disclosed in their underlying footnotes um, as it pertains to other liabilities that are unrecorded on their balance sheet. Uh, and and who stands to benefit from that $1.6 billion? That would really be the TRA rights are held by pre-IPO owners. And in this case, that would really be the Garcias who control the TRA. Uh, and, and so Car Carvana announced a tax preservation plan uh, two weeks ago or so um, in order to preserve its NOLs in the case of an ownership change. So is is that related to the TRA? 
in this specific example, the TRA was focused on the sharing of benefits from amortization deductions, which to Saisha's point stemmed from basis steps ups. Um, TRAs can cover net operating losses, but those were not covered or contemplated as part of the Carvana TRA. In this instance, the Carvana TRA is entirely focused on basis step ups. I would do I would note some of the unused deductions have since been converted to net operating losses that may continue to be subject to the TRA. So a portion of the TRA is part of the NOL. But I would say, by and large, this tax preservation plan is a little bit of a red herring in well, our point of view. I mean, it, you know, it, de it definitely got market participants uh, concerned about a potential bankruptcy filing. So, I mean, what would happen to the TRA uh, were Carvana to file? Yeah, so there really haven't been that many bankruptcy filings that involve a TRA claim. But we've seen this happen in both the bankruptcies of Rose Hill Resources and J.G. Wentworth. In those cases, TRA holders were able to receive a portion of the equity in their recovery. And in terms of how this works structurally, a bankruptcy would generally trigger the acceleration of all obligations under the TRA. And as you might have guessed from the way this was described before, TRA benefits are generally paid out over time as and when a company realizes cash tax savings. So these payments can occur over a 10, 15 year period. But in a bankruptcy, you would accelerate all those payments. And so in Carvana's case, based on the company's filings, this could result in a claim that's well over a billion dollars. In terms of where the claim would sit, the claim would be subordinated to the company's debt, but senior to their equity. And this is because the TRA itself includes explicit subordination provisions within it. And again, as we kind of touched on before, much of the benefit of this claim would accrue to the Garcias themselves. And I think this is where it creates some interesting nuances because the TRA could provide the Garcias with additional ammunition in a bankruptcy. And depending on where recoveries lie, the additional claim could provide them with more avenues to exert influence over a bankruptcy proceeding and improve their recoveries. Uh, and, and so, I mean, this might be a, a silly question, but if, if the... The, the payments under these agreements are kind of, you know, spread out over, you know, many, many years. And, and if the company were to file, they obviously have not received any any of any of the, the cash payments or benefits. So um, any claims on this and let's say that it was fully paid out. It, it's it's cash that that Carvana doesn't actually have today and what, what maybe would have gotten in the future. But it, it becomes a cash obligation in the present, even though. It, it, none of those future flows have been have been received, right? Yeah, that, that's right. So when you accelerate this payment stream, you do it on a number of assumptions. And one of those assumptions is that you assume that the company would have been able to fully utilize these tax deductions when they became available. So even though <clears throat> these are occurring in the future and haven't yet happened, when you accelerate, you assume that they will happen. And that's how you calculate this claim. And uh, I mean, so do you see that um, 
you know, the, the instances of, of, of tax receivable claims and bankruptcy becoming a bigger kind of uh, issue? Or, I mean, uh, are there a lot of precedents for how how these kind of claims are handled in bankruptcy? So uh, there aren't a ton of precedents out there. The ones where we've seen recoveries so far are in Rose Hill, J.G. Wentworth. That said, these that said, TRAs have become increasingly common in the market. And so I would expect that as a product of that in the next few years, we'll see these playing out in bankruptcies more often just by virtue of their prevalence. Just one thing that I might note is that it is a incremental form of currency. Um, we would note that in 2017, um, as part of the TXU restructuring, the emerging company, Vishra, came out with a large tax receivable agreement. And so it's an incremental form of currency um, as creditors think about increasing their recoveries in time. Oh, so that, well, that's right. I was I was actually going to ask that. So you know, obviously, Carvana has been in the news a lot, and you know, you see kind of the you know their their debt holders, you know, kind of coming to some agreement about how to you know strategies going forward. So, but given that the 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 TRA uh, claims are subordinated, it it won't will it affect their recoveries, or I mean, will part of their recovery potentially be a portion of you know the a future tax receivable agreement? Yeah, so for existing debt holders, because of these subordination provisions, the TRA should come after them in a bankruptcy proceeding. But the Garcias in this instance would have control over an entirely different claim in the proceeding, and that's where they could start exerting additional influence. All right, well, that's all really interesting. Again, this is something that I have never kind of thought about uh, before, but... um... It seems, you know, all things Carvana are interesting, and this is actually a, a, a really interesting wrinkle in kind of, you know, all the coverage that, you know, we've seen. So I um, appreciate you guys kind of giving us an overview of this, and, uh, you know, we'll uh, be interesting to see how it plays out. Yeah, definitely. Thanks for the time, Peter. All right. Uh, take care, guys. February is a busy month at Reorg. On February 21st, Reorg is hosting a webinar, Ukraine Credit Considerations One Year Into the War, with panelists from Blue Bay Asset Management, ICU, and Fountain Court to cover the war's impact on Ukraine's economy and public finance so far and an overview of the Ukrainian restrictions we saw in 2022. On February 24th, Reorg is hosting a webinar, Recent Trends in Distressed Healthcare, with panelists from JLC Advisors, Sidley Austin, SAK Management Services, and Saybrook Fund Advisors for a discussion on overall credit quality of the healthcare industry, the sources of stress that are common, in particular to subsectors, and the current condition of the debt capital markets and the outcomes such as bankruptcy and other distressed investment strategies. Also on February 24th, REARG will be participating in the 19th Annual Wart Restructuring Distressed Investing Conference, which will cover the current economic climate and issues of debt investing and restructuring across the globe. Register now at REARG or email marketing at REARG.com for further information. Thank you again for listening to this REARG Weekly Review. Find all our podcasts on the REARG.com webinars and podcast page, as well as Spotify, iTunes, SoundCloud, and Amazon. Hope your families are healthy and safe. Have a great weekend and see you next Friday.